Hello and welcome to the Kitty Pool Podcast, where we dip and dangle our toes into the sparkly waters of kids' media. We talk to anyone and everyone who makes stuff for the newest generation of human beings. We want to know what is being made for kids, who is making it, why they're making it, how they're making it, and all the juicy bits of real life that make up the in-betweens. It'll just be a relaxing day at the pool among friends. I'm Carly Shiraki, and today we're chatting with the man, the myth, the legend, Steve Burns. From 1996 to 2002, Steve starred in the Nickelodeon series Blue's Clues, and we loved him for collecting clues in his handy-dandy notebook and singing about normal stuff like mail. He brought such authentic simplicity to his role, speaking directly to the camera, asking questions of the kid viewers at home, and waiting patiently for their response. And I've told him, and I'm going to tell you, I watched a lot of Steve vids on the internet before my Sunny Side Up audition in 2012. He was very, very, very good at his job. In 2002, Steve left Blue's Clues not to die, in fact, but to be reborn as a musician. He released Songs for Dust Mites, his debut rock album for adults in 2003, and the album marked a beginning of a collaboration with Stephen Drozd of The Flaming Lips. Now Steve and Steven are at it again, calling themselves Steve and Steven. And at the time of this recording, they are about to drop a new album of music for all ages called For Everywhere. And if the single The Unicorn and Princess Rainbows is any indication, the record is going to be an epic explosion of psychedelic indie rock insanity. And I, for one, am looking forward to it. <laughs> Steve, there are so many things I want to know. Welcome to the kiddie pool. Hey, hi. First of all, that was probably the greatest and most wonderful intro not only was it highly specific and exactly right <laughs> it was flattering and amazing and really well done so good job oh thank you steve i like your pool by the way i wish you guys could see where we are it is the most adorable brooklyn apartment like if you imagine a brooklyn apartment it's not as cute as the one that we're in right now <laughs> it's really great in here Steve, thank you. It is a pleasure to have you here. It's true. We are in my very tiny slice of Brooklyn, but we're still beside a pool, you know, metaphorically speaking. Oh, did I ruin it? Uh, no, 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 Did no, I, did no. I oh, suspend your disbelief? No, it's great. We it's were great. in a pool. We have, we have a small magnet that says IP in pools and that which, rests between us. Which is really cool because I swim in toilets. <laughs> this is great. This is the day we were all supposed to have. Okay, Steve, 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 I've got questions for you. And yes. I actually want to wind you all the way back to the beginning. I want to know a little bit about young Steve, preschool mm. child Steve. Oh, my. What were you like as a kid? Super weird. Really? I was a super weird kid. How so? Well, <laughs> I was obsessed early on with Mork from Ork, and really? I used to dress as Mork from Ork. In fact, there's a song on the new album For Everywhere called I Won't Let You Change Who I Am, which is about me being bullied. Because I, I went to school on the first day of school dressed as Mork from Mork. Oh. Straight up with the suspenders and the little, yeah. What age was this? Well, I had a Mork phase for a while. Oh, God. Okay. Great. Great. But as a preschooler, I was kind of in a lonely sandwich. Always have been. You know, I've always been kind of a reclusive dude. Mm -hmm. And I was even then. I would like hide in the garage. But not in a negative way. Like I was really, I was really into like creating my own fantasy realms and, you know, building forts. And I was always trying to run into the woods. But I was always a little bit of a showman as well. I was really obsessed with certain things, you okay. know, like Mork. Yeah, Mork great. and Rocky. Even, Rocky! 
when I was in preschool, actually, it was my first musical influence was the soundtrack of Rocky. Not just the dun 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 that everyone loves, but I really liked deep cuts. Yeah, I really liked the sad music in there, and I would play the whole thing, you know, and I would kind of invent my own movie to that music, even before I was super familiar with the movie. Wow. So, when did you find performing or theater? I mean, besides than the garage, probably there, honestly. But it was just always something I did. The Italian side of my family was very hilarious. My uncle Buckets was hilarious, and Uncle Buckets, Uncle Buckets, yeah, he was funny. My mom is very funny, and they just kind of encouraged my weirdness. It actually culminated around the Mork phase. I would do stand-up routines at the family picnics. Really, you're Italian. You know what a big Italian family picnic is like. Oh, I know. (laughs) Wait, why do they call Uncle Buckets Uncle Buckets? No one knows. Oh wow, great. We have an Uncle Toot. No one even knows. No one can spell it. Do you have a lot of aunts and uncles? Well, yeah, on the Italian side. Yeah, yeah and a lot of cousins sure. and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Do you have siblings? I have two older sisters, yeah. Okay. There's a performative dysfunction that exists when you're the youngest, I think. Totally. So I don't want to ask you too many questions about the Blue's Clues experience. But wait, can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. Did, did you really watch Blue's Clues for your sunny side thing? Steve, yes. Oh, my goodness. And I should say for anybody listening who doesn't that know this. That is so cool. I host a show on Sprout called Sunny Side Up, and it's a live morning show for kids. And there's a chicken puppet. And much like Steve in Blue's Clues, I talk directly to the camera, to the kids mm-hmm. at home. Do a great them, job, by the way. Oh, thank you. Leaving space for them to respond and stuff like that. And there are four human hosts of the show. I have to specify human because of the puppet. You know that life. You are the oh, human, I feel everything you're human host deeply. of Blue's Clues. I, I deeply and meaningfully understand everything you're okay, saying. Okay, so we actually want to ask you this host to host because I know all <laughs> host to host. That was a high five. <laughs> you know, the four of us, the four hosts of the Sunny Side Up show, will have days where our brain does turn to cheese sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's like a very isolating experience to talk directly to a camera to kids at home, but they're not actually there. And I have this added bonus of there's a puppeteer at my feet so we can joke around in between takes, and we do, believe me, because mm-hmm. we don't actually have a crew either. The crew's on a different floor. So it's just a PA, a stagehand, me, and a puppeteer when we're filming our show. So the camera never moves. Yeah, there's three oh, cameras in the room, and we kind of find our way around. So I know I've had the experience of just there are days where your brain melts away because no one is actually responding to you. And, I mean, do you know about this cheese brain thing? Yeah. I mean, I lived the cheese brain experience for how many years, you know? It does sound like there's a lot of similarities. You have some added pressure, though, with live and just, there's stuff that you do that I didn't have to deal with. But the concept of being alone and the concept of trying to viably create a meaningful relationship with a camera for a highly special audience is a great challenge. And I think you guys all do it really well. But that was really what got me up in the morning. Like, that's what I loved about it. Yeah. You know, that's what I saw as my job. Absolutely. You know, the show was so brilliantly conceived, and I was in such good hands in terms of the curriculum and how it was researched and what Angela Santamaro did. So I didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. My job was to really make that relationship, to really create that. And I came to New York to be Dustin Hoffman. You know, I mm. came to New York to be this highly serious actor. And I took that really seriously as an actor. I was fascinated by the challenge. I was really into it. And I think if that connection was achieved at all, which 20 years later, it seems like it might have been, I think it was because of the detail and the sincerity that we were all giving to the relationship that you're talking about. It's important. And I think that Blue's Clues and other shows around that time that really took that bar almost made it necessary now. 
I think that there is an expectation for children to interact in that way. And it's also a huge responsibility. I don't know if you feel that as well. I absolutely feel that. And it's a responsibility that I don't take lightly. Um, I totally identify with what you're saying about that's the reason you get up in the morning. Like it's my greatest honor to show up and talk to kids at home and Mm. to create a meaningful, intimate relationship. And that is why I watched videos of Blue's Clues to get Mm. ready for the audition because you did that in such an honest and relaxed way. Unless the mail arrived. There was nothing (laughs) relaxed about that. There's an authenticity to um, the true joy of receiving mail, especially these days. How often do you get mail? How often do you buy stamps? Yeah, you know, that's one of the most profound differences between Steve the character and Steve the human. I don't enjoy getting mail. Mail feels like homework to me. Wait, what? I know. Like, I've never liked getting mail. I was like, what? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with this? Is it because it's bills? Yeah. But what's the difference between a letter? Oh, okay. If if I just get a letter... (laughs) then then I'm super psyched. Who doesn't like to get that? But I'm just saying that most of the mail that I receive as an adult human being is homework. That's a good point. But talking about that responsibility, Fred Rogers said, and I think this is so true and it only gets more and more true, that anything that comes out of a screen in your house is sanctioned by the caregiving of the parents, essentially. To a child, it's perhaps not unlike any other appliance. Anything that comes out of the fridge is okay. Anything that comes out of the stove is going to be fine because it's an extension of the caregiving of the home environment. So we're probably wise to see media in the same way. And I've always believed that, but that really froke me out as the host of a children's television show. About the second season, I started to get like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is working. So how many millions of kids are listening to what I'm How many millions of kids believe that I am their friend? Not how many millions of kids are sort of participating in this in a way that is fun? How many of them believe it? And what does that mean? And what am I saying? You know, I just told every single one of these children that they're really smart. I have no idea if they got that question right or wrong. Is it okay to just blanket tell everyone that they're awesome? Mm -hmm. You know, I think we did a great job and I am ferociously proud of everything that I said on the show, but the responsibility felt very real to me. Whoa. What was it like to meet real kids always weird because even when I looked exactly like me they were still like cool where's the dog I know that life where's the chicken fantastic Steve it's great that you're here where is the dog perhaps we could do magical things let's solve puzzles with your magical puzzle solving puppy and like I can't deliver the dog (laughs) you know (laughs) and they would say is blue real is what they would say all the time Mm. And I would always say, yes, Blue is a real cartoon dog. <laughs> and Good they were answer. Like, mm, there's something up with that answer, but I'll move on. You know? Yeah. <laughs> they accepted it. But now, ever since I went bald and became old. What? I love it. But I get into arguments with eight-year-olds. Like, you are not Steve. I'm like, I am Steve. Like, no, you are not. And I say, yes, I am. And then we have to, like, debate it, <laughs> which is hilarious to me. What? I get scientific. I'm like, you know, once you reach 18, most of your cells start to die. And atrophy sets in, and some of us lose our hair, and we become older looking. And That is a beautiful way to tell them the real truths of the world. <laughs> Honesty is the way to go. So it's cool to hear you talk about Fred Rogers and to oh, like yeah. think about this industry and world that we're a part of, which you didn't even set out to necessarily get into, and then now this is part of your whole life. So 
you and I actually met through the Children's Media Association, mm-hmm. which is an organization that connects people that make media for kids. So it feels like there's a really supportive scene in New York City, at least, and elsewhere too, I'm sure. There's exchanges of ideas, and this podcast is an extension of just that. Was there a kids' media scene when you were on Blue's Clues? Were you a part of it? I have always been an outsider to this whole thing. I really have been. I didn't even know any children when I became the host of Blue's Clues. That's true. And my inflection and my point of view and everything that I was bringing to children's television was not of that world. And it made it a little uncomfortable for me sometimes, but I think it's part of why it worked. So no, if there was a scene then, I wasn't involved in it. You know, looking back at that time, I just remember being really busy. And, you know, the CMA and everything, it really is just wonderful. And it does seem super much more connected. And I think that has a lot to do with the global interweb. And Blue's Clues was really evolving as that was evolving. And it's very different now. The tools to be connected are much greater now. I'm sure there was a scene there, but I wasn't really a part of it. Sure. You were also, like, doing the work and, you know, yeah, making the show yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you do in the years that you were on Blue's Clues to balance some of the craziness of making the show and I mean I know you do voiceover now did you start doing voiceover that was always my main job really always even before Blue's Clues during Blue's Clues I always say Blue's Clues was the ancillary gig Blue's Clues was my part-time job Wow. my career has always been voiceover really how did that start for you the first job I ever got in New York City was a Levi's jeans commercial and do you remember uh, it I remember that I said something like there's a feeling you can only get in New York and I remember thinking I've been in New York for four days. I have no idea what that feeling is. Maybe that feeling is panic. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I remember leaving the set of Blue's Clues on my lunch break twice to go record McDonald's commercials. And I remember the producers being like, where are you going? And I'm like, I'm going to make enough money for rent. Like, this is my job. Uh, And I've been so lucky to always do that. And it's still what I've been doing. What are your favorite kinds of voiceover jobs? Well, I only do commercial voiceover jobs. Okay. You know, that's always been all I've ever done. I've tried to do video games. I'm bad at it. As a voice actor, I don't think I have this huge range. You know, I can do a lot of funny voices, but in my actual me persona, I'm very much like, I'm going to sell you some insurance now. You know who's great at voiceover is Donovan. Oh. The the new guy from Blue's Clues. Really? He's got a real all over the place Robin Williams kind of voiceover thing that he can do that I can't do. Well, I mean, that's the cool thing about voiceover, though, is that... Oh, there's so many cool things about voiceover. Like, working for three hours a day without taking a shower. That's definitely a great part about voiceover. (laughs) It's always been the best job in the whole world. It is really absurd. And I've always guarded it very jealously. Like, I was taking it very, very seriously. That's a good gig to have. It's sustaining. And it let me do things like Blue's Clues at first. And it let me do things like music. It affords you the time to do other things one more quick technical question on this voiceover life you have a great voice thank you um do you have to work to take care of it no really i don't you know i don't go out and have a bunch of drinks if i've got a job the next day or something like that i don't smoke or anything like that but uh you know it just kind of is what it is cool that is lucky. i thank my father for my voice my voice is but a pimple on the ass of my father's voice he was he, he talked like it, it was just crazy Oh, my God. Yeah, his voice would kind of shake the room, you know. (gasps) Wow. Amazing. So, yeah, how did you get into music then, making music, which your voiceover career afforded you to do? Well, I've always done that. I've always been really into recording software. 
And even before there was software, I always had like a little, in high school, I, I figured out a way to flip tapes over and record multiple tracks that way with a broken tape recorder. And so I used to play little eight bars on my guitar and then play along to it and be like, this is the neatest thing. In theory, this could go on infinitely. And I would always be really into that. And then I would buy like the latest little reel-to-reel kind of thing. And then I had eight tracks. And then it got kind of digital. And then I had 16. And then there was Pro Tools. And then I just kind of lost my mind. That's what I did to relax during Blues Clues. Was Clear I was, the toys. Yeah, that's always been my go-to thing. And I like producing music as much as I like writing it. You know? Really? Did you produce on your album? On my first record, I did a lot. The one I did for adults in 2003 basically what happened there is i just had a bunch of music on a hard drive and i knew a guy who knew a guy who knew dave fridman who produced my favorite record of all time which is the flaming lips soft bulletin which is a record that changed my whole aesthetic when i heard it i just went nuts and i shot him my cd and he only listened to it because he thought it was going to be terrible and he called me he's like this is actually kind of cool did you want to do something with this and so a lot of the stuff that i did in my bedroom made it to that album Whoa. Did you tour that album? I toured. I mean, I became such good friends with that band. They're the most generous, amazing, kind people. They took me on tour with them in the UK, so I opened for the Flaming Lips in the UK, which was insane. All you know, on the same stage that David Bowie did, Spiders from Mars. And, you know, let's just say that I was a little green. (laughs) (laughs) But they would try. They would help. They'd come out and rouse up the crowd for me. And it was in so many ways a dream come true rock star thing except for the sex drugs and rock and roll aspect of it what actually happened on that tour is we'd play a show for like six thousand people and then we'd get on the tour bus and talk about what books we were reading (laughs) so then how did this album for everywhere how did it come to be when was it first a seed in your mind well you remember jack's big music show Mm -hmm. which i miss i Mm. loved that show yeah they asked me to write a song about a groundhog and i was like yeah right on i feel like i could do that and I happened to be talking to Stephen Drost at the time. And I said, hey, man, do you want to collaborate? And he said, sure. And we sat down with a couple guitars and we wrote that song in 10 minutes. I think we stopped in the middle of writing it and said, we need to do a whole record like this. This is fun. This is so much fun. And he had just had kids. And so he, it was very much on his brain. And it was really a chocolate and peanut butter situation there. <laughs> and it was as much fun as I've ever had writing music. I love writing kids' music with that guy. Yeah, tell me more about that collaboration. I've never collaborated with someone named Carly before, so like, what is that experience? (laughs) Well, first of all, it's symmetrical, which is lovely. But he is my favorite musician. That's real. So I fangirl out the whole time. I kind of suppress that. But for people who are fans of the Flaming Lips, I mean, they're kind of a critical darling band, at least they were, for sure, in the late 90s and the early aughts. They really are special in terms of the orchestration and the detail that goes into their stuff. And that's all him. He plays all the instruments. And he's one of those dudes who sits there, chews a piece of gum, stares in the middle distance for five minutes, and has a song composed. And he says, all right, got it. And then he goes and he plays the drum parts and he plays the bass all in one take and it's done. And it's crazy amazing with Wizard of Oz harmonies. And even if I wasn't writing music with him, it would be fun to watch that. You know, it's fun to be in the studio with someone like that. And he's so good that I can say things to him like, all right, let's go a little Ben-Hur here, but like we'll add like a Wizard of Oz thing. And then you know that part of Diamond Dogs, the Bowie thing. Let's do that if you can find that. And then we'll get Puff the Magic Dragon and kind of Peter, Paul, and Mary on the outro. And he's like, yeah, right, got it. <laughs> you, know? you can just throw colors at the guy. And it, 
it's a dream come true to work wow. with him. I wish he was here. He would love this. We share a very similar sense of humor. We share a lot of the same musical taste. It's a great collaboration. It's so much fun. It's such a special thing to find collaboration soulmates. That is a real special treat to find mm -hmm. somebody you can make stuff with. Well, I have a feeling that he collaborates with a lot of people, and mm -hmm. I think they all have the same experience with him. Mm -hmm. I think maybe he's my soulmate. I think maybe he's anybody's soulmate who gets to work with him. What is the part of the process that is most activating for you? Is it melodies come to you or you get excited about lyrics? Well, with Steven, because I'm a musician as well, like, you know, I'm not even in the same universe as he's in, but, you know, I do think musically and I can come at him with a melody or there's also a sense of, hey, man, what do you got? And he'll throw a little nugget on the table and I'll get inspired that way. But what I loved most about that process with him while we were doing it was the criteria that we had was we're not writing the song unless it moves us. We won't do it. Why do it? We're not going to continue with the song unless it's making us laugh. And if this is a sad song, it should make us cry a little. That was our criteria. It was actually, I remember recording those songs. Like it was a really emotional thing. And we're writing a kid's record. There were aspects of it that were like, wow, I'm really in this, you know? And I think that that's the best you can ask for when you're making music at all. And I didn't necessarily feel that way when I was writing my music for adults necessarily. It was a much deeper process, I think, for both of us. I mean, not to make it too heavy-handed, but I mean, we were really into it. And we were making sure that it appealed to us in all the ways that we would expect our favorite music to appeal to us. What are you most excited for the people that listen to this album to experience? I still have music in my life that I listen to and I want to cry. And that's hugely important to me. And uh, I have music that I listen to when I want to run five miles. And I have music that I listen to if I'm feeling mad. I don't see why kids can't have that. I just don't. I don't have children. I'm not lucky enough to have children yet. But I've met a lot of them. And some of them are mad. And some of them have sad feelings. And some of them are incredibly inspired. And some of them are hilarious. And they're as richly emotional, if not more so, than the adults that I know. And so I'm really, I would be excited to know that we're reaching kids on a more expressive level. I mean, there are a lot of people who are doing exactly what we're doing. But I think the cliche of children's music is that it sort of exists in yay. Like the kids get yay a lot. And yay is great. But if we're reaching kids beyond that, that would make me the happiest or the most satisfied. Cool. And you have a big debut show coming up at Brooklyn Bowl. Is there plans to tour the album beyond that? We don't really know. I mean, half of my band is in a much bigger band. So that would be pretty tricky. I would like to develop some kind of like suitcase version of it where maybe he's on a screen like the Great Oz kind of thing. And it's just him in kind of an interactive digital way. And me just playing a guitar in front of him or something. Hopefully there's an iteration of it that works and makes sense. I'd love the music to have a life beyond just the album. But who knows? <laughs> we'll figure that out when he gets here in late February and we start to rehearse the music. Cool. So you are, you're at the beginning of a journey here. Well, I mean, we've been making this record for 300 years, so it doesn't feel that way <laughs> because we would just do it in our spare time. So it took like seven years to, oh, really? to finish. Well, yeah, I mean, <gasps> and the truth is we finished it and then there was some interest from some interesting people and they kind of sat on it for a long time. And then we just kind of said, we're just going to do this ourselves. That's the funny thing about creative stuff really can take a lot of time. You can 
pop something out into the universe and it's just going to sit and you come back to it. Somebody comes back to it. It comes back to itself. It's just a wild thing. And also, this was something that we just kind of did for the sheer force of loving it. And so we weren't desperate to get it out necessarily. We were just like, we just want to keep writing this record forever. That's awesome. For the listeners at home, Carly has a really nice computer. (laughs) It's space gray. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous of it. I was going to ask you about the greatest challenge while you're scoping out my computer. I was going to ask you the greatest challenge of your music making journey. Well, in writing the kids record, keeping up in the studio is hard for me because I'm pretty remedial as compared to the people I'm working with on this record. So just keeping pace, being able to like write a good pile of lyrics, you know, at the same speed that Stephen Droz can compose an entire song was hard. What you know? a great occasion to rise to though. Yeah, but it was definitely kind of challenging for me. And also returning to children's entertainment has been a little fraught for me, like in a good way, but it makes me a little nervous being the host of Blues Clues for so long and just have so much regard and respect for the whole thing that it just felt important. I don't know if that makes any sense, Carly. I'm sorry. No, that absolutely makes sense. You've been out the game for a minute. Well, and also away from the game for many, 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 many minutes. So returning to that. And also just I am a guy who's been surrounded, fortunately, by a lot of really amazing children's entertainers like Michael Rubin, who was mailbox on Blues Clues and wrote so much of that music for Blues Clues. And those were always my favorite times on Blues Clues was going to the studio to record the music. I mean, that guy is just amazing, like the amount of music he can turn out that is great. You know, so I have all these examples around me of these amazing children's entertainers and musicians and things that I felt a little unworthy, perhaps, to throw my hat in that ring. Well, I mean, then it makes sense that now is when you throw your hat in the ring. You've had time to, like, cook all these different pieces of inspiration. Yeah, it feels cool now, you know. <laughs> it's really neat. 20 years, it makes me feel very old, you know, and that's a little unnerving. And it does feel like two lifetimes ago that I was on that show. But the further away I get from it, the more precious and awesome it feels. It just feels really cool to know that you watched Blue's Clues to prepare for what you do is just crazy to me and awesome. And I said the other day, like, if there is even an outside shot that I'm somebody's Grover, how wonderful is that? It just gets more and more precious to me the further away I get from it. That is so beautiful. Yeah. I love that. So you mentioned wanting to be in the woods as a kid, Mm -hmm. and just from your social media presence, you run into the woods as an adult. What does nature do for you? What is that relationship? Oh, wow. Like I said, I've always been kind of in a lonely sandwich. There is a pond in my backyard in the woods. You have to take a little half-mile walk through the woods and you arrive at this pond. And I mean, that's really where I grew up, you know, catching frogs, you know, fishing, sitting pensively by a pond, you know, and that gets into you. That really formed my DNA. And New York has been a real challenge for me for 20 years. I've lived here for 20 years. Still doesn't feel like my home because my home has trees and frogs. I know that. I think New York is an amazing I'm trying to see the world right now. You know, I've seen some of the great cities in the world, and New York is definitely one of them. And I love it more today than I ever have. But the pace and just the noise and the lack of trees and frogs doesn't feel like the way my soul vibrates. You know what I mean? 
So uh, nature is extremely important to me. And it's something that as I enter middle age, something I'm very aware that I should include more of in my life. I suspect that it's important to everybody. That's what I suspect. I think even people who are born on East 68th Street would benefit from the Catskills at least sometimes, <laughs> you know, or autumn in Pennsylvania. I imagine that that's important to us all on some brainstem kind of way. Yeah. Do you go away to write? Is that like a part of your music making? I'm sure you know this process as well as I do, but you can't really. It just, it writes you, you know, it happens and then you do it. You know, every time I have sat down with a guitar to write something, it has been terrible. But, you know, if it's two in the afternoon on a Sunday, I'm like, oh boy, there's an idea. And I go and I grab it and then it happens. I'm sure you do this too, but I mean, to me, it's all the same stuff. Theater, music, I'm taking photography classes right now. It's all the same stuff. It's just the lens you put in front of it is sometimes different. I make no distinction between if I'm writing an essay or if I'm drawing something or if I'm playing the guitar or if I'm in a play. It's all the same gunk. It's just like a Play-Doh fun factory. It just depends on what you put in front of it. It's like how it hits the world. So I don't really make a distinction. Yeah. What do you think is the Steve thread that permeates all those things? Can you identify the thing that makes them whole throughout? I think I've learned as a creative dude to have a bag of tricks that I rely on. You know, I kind of rely on disarmingly adorable things like self-deprecating and charming in kind of a hoggle from Labyrinth way. That's sort of my thing. I'm more Bert than Ernie, hmm. which is something I used to say a lot on Blue's Clues because the inflection of that show was very Ernie. And I would always say, no, 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 no. I'm more Bert than Ernie. There's something up with Steve, and we don't know what it is. <laughs> but that's important. We should know that it's a little quirky. There's something up with Bert, and there's something up with Steve. It's a slight neurosis, basically. I can say that now after 20 years. And I think that that kind of inflection is sort of, certainly in all the songs that I write, and certainly in Blue's Clues and... I think I bring a self-deprecation to everything. <laughs> I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing. I think it's just my bag of tricks. Cool. It's my go-to. Ha! Interesting. We're going to get to Blue and Chica, but I also wanted to tell you, you told stories for the Moth, and everyone should go look them up because they're good. But you did Radio Love Fest last year. You mm. were hosting for the Moth. You were there. I was there. We got a high five. Mm. But also, I was super inspired after that whole night being with this crowd and hearing stories and actually went to a story slam like a month later and did a story on stage. How'd you do? Of that. Second place. I could see you being really good at that. I was close, man. I was close. I mean, that's something that on the list of side hustles, I'm, tools I'm sharpening, that's one of them. That's but also, there is something about podcast, talking into a mic, telling a story, talking to other people, getting their stories. But so you were in part a part of this kind of inspiration. So I just wanted to share that with you. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I love the moth. I love this whole craze about storytelling right now. I think that it exists because it's so simple. Mm -hmm. I think it's a reaction to social media in a sense. I love that the moth is live. I love that you don't prepare necessarily. I love that it's just bullet points and that you are straight up actually relaying a story to someone without the intermediary of the global interweb. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's the most immediate form of storytelling. Yeah. You know? And I love how popular it is. Yeah. Mm. It feels more tangible than anything else we're given at this moment in time. It is. It's exactly what I'm saying. And my favorite 
you know, actors and actresses like you and I, people who have some experience communicating ideas to people, have a skill set that they can bring to it already. But I prefer the people who have who are a little uncomfortable telling the story, but just have a great story to tell. Mm-hmm. That's the moth stuff that I love. So what you can't see right now is that Steve is holding my Chica plush doll, which I do have in my home. And it's really a beautiful sight to see the two of them together. I've said this in the top of the interview, and I'll say it again. I wish you guys could see how delightful and charming this Brooklyn apartment is. It's sort of the formative ideal of what a charming Brooklyn apartment should be. Everything's the right color. The light is lovely. It's really nice here. Steve, I appreciate that. But seeing Steve with Chica right now is a beautiful thing because doing Sunny Side Up with this chicken puppet, like Chica's got a personality. She's operated by a human being. And especially because oftentimes the show itself isn't scripted, we're messing with each other and having fun. And that's not something that you got to do working on Blue's Clues because it was scripted and it was just you and a green screen. Blue screen. Excuse me. Wait, wait, really? Well, yeah, my shirt was green. So. So we were on a blue screen, which was merciful. The chroma key blue is actually very close to the color of your guitar. Ah. And it's somewhat pleasant, actually, to be around. I've found it to be a very creatively engaging kind of vast ocean space. It just seemed like an infinite space to be there. When I walk on a green screen, I'm like, this is the color of anger and menace. That green does something else psychologically. But the blue, actually, I thought was really sort of beautiful. Whoa. That's so interesting. So... I get to have a little bit of a relationship with my sidekick, so much so that I walked into a toy store once and saw a Chica doll and was like, I had this feeling of friendship or warmth towards this sure. thing on a shelf. I almost wanted to like turn to the people in the store like, well, you don't really know her the way I know her, you know? <laughs> Just because like you don't understand these puppeteers. Chica has a personality that we get to interact with in kind of a real way. But if you see a blue doll, what does that mean to you? Does it mean anything to you? It means Blue's Clues to me, but I don't have that connection that you have because when I was working on the blue screen, I was looking at a piece of tape on the floor, you know, and I was creating blue in my mind, but I can't say it looked exactly like that dog, you know, it was more of an idea. So I don't have that familial connection to the products that you might. I remember probably the most surreal moment that I ever had as the host of Blue's Clues was I got to be in the Macy's Day Parade. And it was freezing cold, and I was sick. And uh, it was raining, but it was still really amazing. I mean, being on a float, going down Broadway in the city where you live, and there are millions of people, and half of them are up. You don't know that when you watch it, but half of them are up hanging out of windows. And it's just this incredibly unique way of seeing Broadway in New York City. It's still very fresh in my mind. But I remember that was one of the moments where I was like, all of these people have seen the show that I'm on, and they're all freaking out. This is maybe a big show, kind of. And I, it just had never really hit me before. And then I turned around, and there is a 100-foot blue, like, floating down Broadway, looming above me. Steve, the enormity of this is sinking in in a surreal way. And it was quite a moment. And I was like, what is that dog? Why is it so big? It's adorable, but I think it's going to devour me. (laughs) Wow. Thank you for that little extra journey. Okay. Steve, here are some rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? I am ready. What's your favorite color? Blue. What's the last song you listened to? Terrible Love by The National. Okay. If you were going to put a song on a mixtape for a best friend in high school, 
what song would you have put on the mixtape? Waiting Room, Fugazi. And in college? These things are further away from me than they are for you. <laughs> in college, oh, it might have been bad. It might have been like Temple of the Dog or something bad. It might have been bad. But I'm going to go safer, and I'm going to say Pictures of You, The Cure. Great. What's your favorite movie? Rocky. Love that. What's the last show you binge-watched? Stranger Things. Do you ever wear contacts? Not in years. Although I might start now that I've taken photography class because it's tricky with the rangefinder and glasses. So Do you know what your prescription is? Horrible. I'm like blind. What is 475 it? or something like that. Negative eight, Steve. Are you serious? I asked you to see if one of us was worse. And How I do you waiter. even know that I'm here? Because I paid billions of dollars for super contact lenses. Are they really thick? No, they're not. They're just like normal contact lenses. But Whoa. I have to get like super thin frames put into my glasses because yeah. my vision is so bad. I do like to have that competition with people. That was really, that was a question for me, but it was a way of you talking about yourself. <laughs> I just want to point that out. It was. You saw right through it. Wait, that was the end of my rapid fire questions. <laughs> <laughs> that was the finale. Okay. There's something else that we're going to do with you right now. In a recent interview, Steve, you mm. expressed a desire to see Steve of Blue's Clues uh, oh, as a hard-boiled, no-nonsense detective. And I just want to help you make that dream come true right now, okay? Okay. But before we get into the dream coming true, I just need a little bit of help for you because I would like this to feel like a collaboration. So mm. can you give me a plural noun? Oh, this is like Mad Libs. It sure is. Octopi. 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 And how about another plural noun? Calamari. <laughs> Keeping it on a theme. <laughs> okay, what about a food? <laughs> uh, ceviche. <laughs> and a name. Could be a, just a silly name. It could be first name, last name. Robespierre. Why do you spell that? I don't know. It's not my problem. <gasps> Okay, a liquid. A liquid. I'm going to say kombucha. It's Brooklyn. Sure is, baby. Noun. That's so vague. I mean, person, place, or thing. All right. A noun. Again. Singapore. Okay. Verb, ending in I-N-G. Festering. Uh, an animal. You're doing great. I'm almost out of cephalopods. Uh, the chambered nautilus. Adjective. Resplendent. Adjective. Ginormous. Adjective. Moldering. Moldering. And then an adjective and a noun. And then you're done. Okay. Another adjective. Squishy. And a noun. Person, place, or thing. So I should do a person. Mm -hmm. So I did a place and I've done things. So I'm going to pick Theodore Roosevelt. Okay. That was really hard, by the way. You did great. Because it's like a noun. Like, think of all the nouns. There are so many nouns. So many tasty, amazing nouns you could come up with. Okay. So, as you may have guessed, I have just written a short piece. Oh, uh, great. A short monologue of sorts <laughs> that I would love for you to perform right oh, now. Let's do this. In your best noir. And there's also one line for me at the end, so just be aware of that. But... Yeah, you ready? You want to just do it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So wait, am I doing this as Steve from Blue's Clues is now the world's worst detective kind of thing? I think so. Whatever that means to you. I mean, if you wanted to read it through once first, you can. No, we're going to cold read this. Great. Okay, excellent. All right. 
People often ask me, why mysteries? Why not octopi? Or calamari? I got into this business to find the clues, big ones, small ones, some the size of your head. Speaking of which, using my mind hasn't always been easy. Times are tough, as tough as a twice-cooked ceviche, served from the late-night window at Robespierre's Corner Diner. And not even a cool glass of kombucha will wash away the pain. You know what I mean? Do you? Thanks for the validation. I see, I see what you did there. God, you're really smart. I'm glad you're here. Look, I know you don't need me to tell you this, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. Sidewalks are for walking. Singapore's are for festering. Life is for living and crimes are for solving. This town collects crimes like a chambered nautilus collects food for a nest of young. Like a resplendent chambered nautilus life depends on it. When the stakes are high, that up there above the clouds beyond the stars in a galaxy far away, the universe conspires to protect a single ginormous life. I'm talking about my life. You understand? Good. Again, you're really smart. I didn't choose mysteries. Mysteries chose me. But I want them. I want every last moldering one of them. Somebody once told me, we can do anything that we want to do. And I want this phone to ring so I can get back to fulfilling my detective destiny. Hello, Steve. Is, is this Steve? You bet your squishy Theodore Roosevelt it is. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> oh, man, and to find out what that lady was calling about on the phone, you're going to have to hire us to make a detective show, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> see, I kind of see him, like if Steve graduated college and had the world's worth detective. Do you know Columbo, the show mm -hmm. Columbo? Oh, yeah. It would be that, okay. but he would be talking to the home viewer the whole time. Like, sure. Excuse me. Are you reading that paper? Like he would be really, he'd be trying to solve a crime with you, but he would constantly be talking to the camera and it would really confuse the real world. I love you know? that. I mean, I feel like that just should actually happen though. Yeah. I mean, it would really be funny. It would be kind of like a Louis C.K. kind of vibe. It would be hilarious. I feel like Louis C.K. would produce that for you. All right. Well, let's give him a call. We'll get on that. Louis. Hey, Louis. Let's cash in on this nostalgia vibe. <laughs> Steve. Thank you so much. Thank you. For coming here to sit beside the kiddie pool. Right on. <laughs> to dangle your toes in the water and to answer questions and hang out and to eat snacks. Right on. It was such a treat having you here. And I'm so excited for the album. Oh, cool. And everybody, go find it. Go buy it, okay? StevenSteven.com is where to get it. And what are the other places where we can find you on the internet? I'm Steve Burns Alive. He on is. On Twitter and Instagram. And we have a Facebook for Steven Steven. Very cool. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much to Steve Burns for coming by to chat about kids TV, host to host, his music journey, and the joys of nature. We are so glad that he was also game to play a round of Private Eye Mad Libs with us too. Don't forget to check out his album For Everywhere. It's going to be awesome. Seriously, you have to do it. The Kitty Pool is produced and edited by Michal Richardson with special help from Erica Rabner and Aaron Weissman. Well, that's it for the Kitty...
Wait. Is that... There's a unicorn in the pool! And... Princess Rainbows? I... What? What's going on? Steve? The last and lonely unicorn Sadly hangs his magic horn He just read the news But he doesn't know what to feel For the paper he read Just told him that he isn't Let's do the whole thing as though we're under water. <laughs> Welcome to the Kitty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the host, Carly Snoraki, and.